Good morning, everybody. Hey, I'm Pastor John Jay. I am the lead pastor here at uh, FBC Pasadena. It's really good to see you today. We are going to talk this morning about one verse from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And, well... You'll see in a minute why this has been a very both meaningful but difficult uh, text to wrestle with. And I'm going to invite you into that process in the next couple of minutes. But let me uh, let me start by reading our text. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to um, Matthew chapter 5. It's the very end of the chapter. Last week we talked with uh, Harlan, a good friend of mine, about enemies. And about retribution. I'm going to start at verse 43. And then we're going to focus on verse 48. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers or sisters, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Then this line, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. I drew the first one perfect. (laughs) Then it sort of veers off after that. Perfect is awful. So this morning, we're going to talk about this one verse, partly because it sort of sits right at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, this text we've been studying, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a nice little hinge point in uh, the narrative. Also, we're only going to talk about this one verse together today because it's really important and it feels really impossible. Uh, We meet on Thursdays. We've had two of these so far now. On Thursdays at noon in the lobby space, we have uh, a Bible study together for whoever can make it. You can bring your own lunch. We sit together for about an hour and we talk about whatever the text is coming up for the next Sunday. It's a ton of fun. And turns out we need like two to four hours to really get through with everything that happens. Uh, We love to talk here. We talked about perfection and perfectionism. And everybody got like real antsy as I was feeling really antsy about this language to be perfect, that call to perfection. Here's where I wrestled with it this week. Typos. Uh, So does anyone in here just love typos? No, they're like, they're really embarrassing. Um, It's really fun to find typos in your enemies writing. Right? It's like people on Twitter sort of revel in this, that if somebody writes a really sick burn, but it has a couple of typos in it, then it sort of nullifies the anger and makes them look like an idiot. So typos, other people's typos are joy, but your own typos are terrible. Here's what it was like for me this week when I think about perfection. Um, I had to send out several uh, really sort of like intense, important emails this week for our congregation. And uh, the board of advisors, our deacon body and myself, we sort of work on how uh, 
how these things are crafted in the language that communicates the most clearly what's happening behind the scenes. And uh, I, I sort of passed it through all of the people who have the best eyes for these things. And we all worked on it. And we thought like, okay, great. This is ready to go. Now, my thinking is, if I can do this part perfect, then nobody has to feel any pain. So I send the email, and then I go back and I read it, uh, and realize that there are like three typos in the first half. And immediately I think, well, now, if anything goes wrong, it's definitely my fault because of the three typos. Right? There is this need to be perfect when things really count. And if we can't hit perfection and then something goes wrong, well, like, that's where we can look. That was the moment when things went off the rails and we couldn't quite find perfection. So in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus is laying out for us the way that we are supposed to live, what it means to bring heaven to earth, that's like the content of the sermon. And it's really, really difficult stuff. There's all of these laws and commandments from Judaism that Jesus inherits this tradition and hands it back to them. And each time he hands it back to them, this great tradition, he sort of deepens it. Doesn't do away with it, but his language is fulfilling of it. So there are these laws, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If somebody wrongs you, you can't do more to them than they did to you. So if they cut off your pinky, you can have one of their pinkies, but not both of their pinkies and their big toes. Like, that's the rule. And Jesus says, like, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But what I say to you is, and deepens the thing. If you're even like angry at your brother, it's like murder. Or if you even look at someone like you'd like to possess them with lust, then it is like you've committed adultery. Like this deepening of the thing. So it already is starting to feel challenging enough to follow the Sermon on the Mount. And then you get this line. Be perfect. And I'm not going to ask you, but I'm just going to take as a sample size the group that we met on on Thursday about what it feels like to feel called into perfection. And not just any perfection. God's perfection. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know everything about God, even though I studied God in seminaries and I got a master's degree in it, so I should know everything about the divine, but I don't, and neither do you. Uh, but my guess is if there is like a very difficult range of perfection, God is probably like, that's a good bar for the top of that range. So that feels impossible. Now, part of the, the sermon is it's giving us this way to live. And part of it is like, whenever I tell my kids they need to do something, there is a, there's a bird in the balcony. I'm just going to say it now so that if you see a bird in a minute, you don't become scared. I'm assuming the bird is here to hear about perfection. And we'll be like St. Francis preaching to the birds as well. It's somewhere up there. Uh, if anything happens with the bird, I will give you updates along the way. Okay. <laughs> Cynthia, Cynthia. At some point, the, the bird is going to alight on Cynthia's shoulder. <laughs> Whatever I, I'll let my kids know, like here sort of is what is expected of them. Some new chore they're going to they're gonna receive. Uh, it, it has to be something that they can actually do. So I'm like, right, when, when you sort of give new expectations, it, it should be attainable. And so there is this sort of distance between what Jesus asks of us and what we can get to. But when you start to talk about perfection, it makes that leap. It's in, like, that's, this is what it feels like. When you hear to the call to be perfect, does it 
feel like this? Now, here's what happens. If the goal becomes unattainable, I don't know about you, but I sort of think like, okay, I don't have to try anymore then. Uh, if Jesus' call is to perfection, to be perfect, then I'm off the hook because there's no way that I could be perfect. There's no way that you could be perfect. So this must not be for us or it must not be for now. This is actually the way that often the Sermon on the Mount gets interpreted. And this is the reason why. Like, this stuff is really difficult. Love of enemies not to take revenge, to give yourself away, to become small. Blessed are the weak, the poor, the persecuted. Like that's already difficult enough. If I could could have an out, if I don't have to do those things, that would be great. And now Jesus has given me the out by calling me to a standard that is just is impossible. That is often the way that this verse functions. If this is the call, then it must not be for us right now. But I keep saying, and the the text is telling me, that this is for us right now. So what is Jesus doing with this line about perfection? And this is why I hate sometimes the way things work in translation. Perfect is exactly wrong for the way that we understand perfection. So immediately when I say the language of perfect, you, everyone here, and myself as well, we start to sort of import all of our own understandings about what it means to be perfect. So like for me, perfect means no typos in an email. I'm not sure what perfect means for you, but you have a sense of it. And part of perfection, as you understand it, is that with which you have not, a place you have not yet gone. Some standard you haven't reached yet. Perfect is like just beyond where you happen to be. Perfect forces us to do two things in this understanding. It is similar to the tendencies it feels like those first listeners would have had who heard Jesus. They are to add certain things to ourselves and to take certain things away. And, And in those two actions, we can perfect ourselves. So here is often what gets added. Perfection is the ability to receive a paycheck that would allow us to cover our bills, to cover any future kids' college expenses, to pay off all of our debt, to go on enough vacations a year not to go crazy, to maintain some. There is a certain, you all have it and I have it too, what sort of a financial threshold might be perfect for the life that I feel like would be lovely to live. Or in your own prefer career or vocation like what is the thing that you need to get to to become perfect it usually is an an additive element what could i add to my portfolio to my resume to my characteristics that would make me more perfect now here's the other problem with perfection other people mess it up right i was telling uh telling the staff and Thursday that I grew up playing tennis because I wanted to be good at the sport I was playing, but I didn't want other people to mess it up for me. And so in tennis, like it's just on me to do a really good job. And if I mess up, at least I know who to blame. Those typos were my mistake, even though other people helped edit the thing. And so not having other people to rely on is part of the way some of us get to perfection. And if you're spending time around people who are distracting you from your goals or who are damaging your reputation, 
then you've got to sort of do away with those. So perfection becomes the accumulation of stuff, of attributes, and the sort of pushing away of other people that might complicate your journey toward perfectionism. And this is why the language of perfect is perfectly wrong in terms of what Jesus is calling us to. Years ago, 16 years ago, There was a, uh, there's a show on MTV. Do you know MTV? Music television. They used to have music on MTV. And slowly they sort of became the place where you would watch reality programming. Reality TV, which has saved all entertainment from now and on into the future. And there was a show called, I think it was called True Life. Did anyone watch MTV True Life? Just me and my wife. Perfect. You know what I'm talking about. There was a character named Luke, and uh, this is not Luke, but it is what I imagine. The, the episode was called, I Want the Perfect Body. And Luke, no, his name wasn't Luke. Maybe it was Luke. It doesn't really matter what his name was. It was either Luke or Tony. Maybe his name was Tony Luke. He was really, like, he was super fit, really liked to work out. But when he was interviewed about why he was on this show, I Want the Perfect Body, it's because he didn't feel like he had the perfect body yet. And the reason he needed the perfect body was because people would like him if he looked better, particularly women who he was interested in having in his life. Like they were not, he was lonely. And the way to fix his loneliness was to become perfect. And for him, becoming perfect meant, can you guess? Calf implants. Who said it? It was calf implants. So the whole show is this journey toward like the one thing he doesn't like about his body is are his calves. And um, if you're sensitive about your calves, like this is not meant to trigger anything for you. But he was very sensitive about his calf muscles because his shoulders and everything were huge, like abnormally huge. But his calves were normal people calves. And so he, the whole show was his journey toward, and the end of the show, he's sitting on the beach, I imagine, like Malibu. Do you remember this, Corey? And uh, what did he say? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he said, so he said that he's now the, he's the total package, which is another word for perfection. Um, and his other thing that I love was he said that the calf implants were for the greater good of humanity. Which was a little bit overblown. This is though where perfection can lead you. Uh, Brene Brown talks about perfectionism and its dangers. Uh, she's a writer around vulnerability and sort of living a whole full life. And uh, she talks about perfectionism as like a 20-ton shield that we would wear in front of us. Perfectionism becomes the way that we make sure that we never have to feel the pain of a moment or to suffer. If we could just get better, then we could reduce the level of pain that it takes to live in this world. And if we're experiencing pain, it's because we've done something wrong or we are not quite yet enough. And so that pain and suffering is like a punishment for our lack of perfection. She says this is deadly, and I would agree with her. This 20-pound shield. The other thing she says, if you, if you sit with this shield in front of you for long enough, it's like a wall between you and, between, and other people. And after a while, you forget that there is a real you behind this facade, this persona. So what is Jesus talking about 
with this call to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. First, let's hold the phrase because this is a this is one of those lines that is rich with interpretive history. Jesus isn't just like pulling it out of thin air. Uh, this is sort of a central claim in uh, Judaism from which Christianity springs. You must be like this because your God is like this. This line is it's revolutionary. It's like a brand new idea when it shows up on the scene. Because here is what people are supposed to be in relationship to the gods in the sort of when all of these texts are being written. Humanity's role in relationship to the gods is one of service. It's one of sort of like we are nothing, nothing like the gods. And because we are nothing like the gods, we are supposed to serve in like a kind of a slavery position, whatever the God's needs are at any given moment. It's our dissimilarity that puts us in relationship with one another. So then, in the middle of the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 19, it's like right in the middle of Leviticus. Leviticus is right in the middle of the, of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So Leviticus, right in the middle. And then in the middle of the book of Leviticus is this chapter with this verse. And it clusters in this section, like four or five times it shows up. It says, you are to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And this is a brand new idea. That our call is to be something like what God is. To imitate the divine. That's brand new. The whole point of holiness is that we are not like that. That God is like that and we are like something else. But the invitation, this very sort of foundational invitation into relationship with God is to be like God. Now, months ago we talked about the fruit of the spirit. Every week we talked about a different fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, the whole thing. And each time, each week, each Sunday, one of the things that I said is we are to, we are to love like God loves. We are to be full of joy because God is full of joy. Our calling, the way that we are to inhabit the world is supposed to have some kind of overlay with the way we imagine God to inhabit the world, which is why really dangerous, destructive images of God can be so destructive for the world. If you think that your God excludes certain types of people or acts in vengeance and in like sort of anger and and violence, then it would make total sense that you would emulate that God. So getting our understanding of, of God right is pretty important because the call to holiness is our own call. So when Jesus says to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, it's leaning on and borrowing from Leviticus 19. The language of holiness is this word, which I love to say, kadosh. Isn't that a great word? You can say it too. Kadosh, your turn. Yeah, it means holy. It also means heavy, like to have substance and weight, which is why it's written like this. So this is the language for holiness. Shows up the first time in the book of Genesis when God consecrates or makes sacred the Sabbath day. Calls it holy. Then calls us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is what Israel's designation becomes. And then in Leviticus, be holy as your father in heaven is holy. 
So when Jesus picks up the same language, uses the language of telos. So when we see, uh, be perfect as your, as your father in heaven is perfect, it's, it's this word here, telos. Per- perfect is not great. What would be better is the language of, of wholeness or of completeness. Now that is radically different than perfectionism. It also doesn't say you be perfect, like you be perfect, Mary, as God is perfect. It, it actually, from where I, I, I call home, it's y'all. Y'all be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. This language of holism. Now, if we can stop thinking about it as this unattainable goal of perfect, but something more like well put together, we start getting at something that feels, to me, more hopeful. Sin, that huge word that we use in church to talk about what is wrong, the ways that we have tried to understand that here is sin is anything that breaks us apart in our primary relationships. So sin is sort of the undoing of telos, of completeness or of wholeness. Now, when God created everything, there was this unity to it. There was this in intelligibility to it, this holism. We were in relationship with God, with one another, with creation, with ourselves, in a way that fit. Now, does it feel like we are in relationship with one another, with God, with creation, or with ourselves, in a way that still just fits? No. I'm not going to ask you to tell me all the different ways that you feel broken apart, strained, divorced from primary relationships, but you do, I do. And so this call to be whole and complete, like that, feels great. Yes, Jesus, let's do that thing. Put us back together. What's it going to take? What does it take to be perfect. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, often scripture answers itself. And so where we have some confusion, we can continue to read the context and find some clarity. Jesus is talking and teaching. He's just had this moment happen, the text says, where all of these kids rush up. Hey, kids, we have a lot of kids in here today with us because it's an all-church Sunday. So there's this moment when Jesus is teaching and is with all the people, and then all the kids, they all, like, run up and bombard Jesus. I don't know what's happening in this moment. I'm assuming, like, piggyback rides and showing Jesus how big their boogers are, like, whatever kids do these days. And the disciples, they get upset because, like, Jesus has more important things to do than talk to these kids. These kids are super annoying. We need to send them away so Jesus can get back to the important work of healing and, and of teaching. And Jesus says, like, enough. The kingdom belongs to these, so let them come to me. It's already sort of turning expectations upside down. Then tells this story. 
It says that there is a, there is a man who comes to Jesus and asks this very understandable question. What must I do? What good thing, he says, what good thing should I do so that I can possess eternal life? Now, already in the question is some hints at the problem. Eternal life is not exactly something that you can possess, that you can hold on to. Trust me, if you could, we would have already bottled it up and we'd have sold it out in the lobby to you. That's the way these things work. And lots of churches over time have tried to do that exact thing. To say that eternal life, the life with God, you can bottle it up and you can sell it. And if you do all the right things, you can possess it. And church becomes a way to teach you how to close your hands around the gift of God so that it can't ever get away. So you ask the question, like, what good thing do I have to do to possess eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who's good. But if you wish to enter eternal life, not to possess it, but to enter it, if you want to walk through that door, then keep the commandments. The guy says, which ones? You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Also, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man thinks, well, this is great. This is awesome. He says, I've kept all of these. So what is lacking? Because this man has spent his whole life keeping the commandments like they're check marks on a report card. And it feels like he's gotten all A's. Now, do you ever have, like, maybe you have kids or you've got friends who have children. And you know this situation where the kid brings home a report card and it's like all A's and one A minus. And the question that the perfectionist asks is what? What happened? Like, what happened to the minus here? This isn't. So, so this guy, he says, like, I have all A's. Like you just said, keep the commandments and I've done it. Perfect report card. May I please have my dose of eternal life now? What do I still lack? Then Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, if you wish to be complete, Go, sell, give. Go, sell your possessions, give all of your money to the poor. Then, then you will have treasure stored up in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, when the the young man heard this, this was terrible news to him. And he went away super sad because he had a lot of stuff. And the assumption would be that all of that stuff was was the path to perfection. Right, like the right amount of stuff and the right amount of keeping the rules and you get in. And what Jesus says to him is if you want to have everything, then you're going to have to let go of some stuff. And here we're starting to get closer to what Jesus is talking about, about what it takes to be made whole. 
Now, when the disciples hear Jesus talking to this rich young man about how to enter into eternal life, they say, like, hold on, hold on a second. We have given everything away to follow you, Jesus. So have we done what we're supposed to do to get our portion of eternal life? Jesus says, it's going to be easier. It's going to be easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle, which is just a ridiculous way of saying a thing, by the way. Like, we know that that's not possible. Jesus is being funny. But, right, you don't tell the punchline of the joke and then explain the joke or it ruins the joke. So Jesus just leaves it as a joke that makes them hurt in their stomachs. Like, that's not a good joke at all. It'd be easier if a camel walked through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Like, their hands are just too full. And they say, then, like, this feels impossible, Jesus. And now we're back to the beginning of the sermon, right? This feels impossible, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah. By yourself, this would be pretty hard, but with God, all things are possible. So, this language of lack and of letting go feels to me to be the core of what Jesus is calling us to in perfection, in telos, in wholeness and completeness. And the reason that perfection gets it perfectly wrong is because to be perfect is to be made whole with one another again, too. Right before that call to perfection, Jesus talks about enemies. What do you do with your enemies? How do you get them far enough away from you so that they don't infect you? And Jesus says, that's not how this is going to work. Like, you're going to have to pull them in closer, draw the circle bigger. Imagine that they are your neighbor too. If you just love your own kind, what good is that to you? You are not whole or complete if there are others who don't have access to the family. And so if the way you've tried to, to attain perfection and purity is by cutting people off, then you will never be whole. You will never be perfect. It's an invitation to those who have not been in the family back home. And then it is all of this stuff that you were holding on to. It is letting it go. Now, whether for you right now, that is like actually to go sell all your stuff and give it away. Like, let's have a conversation. That's interesting. And I'd love to hear how you've come to that conclusion. Some people, that is the calling. But we all, we all are holding so much that makes it very difficult to receive or to reach a handout or to feel that God has us. I want to tell you one story as we end. It's from a friend of mine. I may have told some of you this story or version of this story before. It's... Um, Well, it's meant a lot to me, so I'm going to share it with you again. Uh, There is a woman, you can see her here in the middle of the picture. Her name is Christina. Uh, I've asked her if I can share this story, and she shared it in various places and online. Um, She's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. I went to school with her at Duke, and she uh, was in an advanced preaching class with me. And one day she didn't show up to class. So I was like, that's weird. She's always on time to class, and she's 
all like she's right. If there's somebody you are trying to drift off of to get a little bit further along in grades, it's Christina. Uh, and she didn't show up for one of our preaching classes. And it was like a couple of weeks later before she came back. And then she preached the sermon that told us where she had been. Turns out where she had been. Was in a hospital. She was always striving for perfect. And that led her to a breakdown. Perfect was sort of masking a deep, deep depression and insecurity. And nothing she did was ever good enough. And she was good. She was really good. So when she came back and she preached to the class of 12 of us, she just like ripped the thing open. It was, it was everything. And shared with us what she had been walking through. What perfectionism had sent her to. The ways that it had broken her down. And because she's a poet and because she was brilliant, she could tell this story with such heft and weight, such holiness. Kadosh, this was heavy stuff she was sharing with us. She said, she went and told her friend Bonnie, uh, who's this other brilliant preacher in this class with me, um, she went over to her house one morning and she said that she was thinking uh, about hurting herself. Sort of changing all the language, feeling down, not depressed, thinking about doing something, not suicide, right? Like, and Bonnie knows her well and says, like, we need to go to the hospital. And she goes to the hospital and Christina uh, basically signs the form and, and enters into treatment for depression and for suicide. And uh, then walks through in this sermon what that was like. To be reduced and reduced and reduced in that space. This language of how much we are holding and how much we have to give up, I've never heard it said better. So I'm just going to read you her words. It said, all my life I've heard preachers tell me to give it up. To surrender things to God. I've bowed my head and closed my eyes. I've knelt at altars and kneeling benches. I've written things on slips of paper to be ripped up or burned. But I've never given anything up. Here in the triage room of Duke Hospital, for the first time, I open my hands and surrender. They ask for everything, and I don't fight. When the nurse leaves the room, I take off my shirt, jeans, socks, shoes, put on a cloth robe. I take my cell phone and my keys out of my pocket. They ask for my shoelaces for reasons I can only imagine. She holds my hand as I sign the form and give up myself. Voluntary commitment, it says on the top. And I think of all those times I committed myself to Jesus. I'm sorry, she says. You're the bravest person I know. She says, I love you, she says, and hugs me right in front of the world's worst nurse. I walk the long hallway down triage to the ward with the nurse and the second policeman to the night. Along the wall are pictures of med school graduates from every year since 75. They smile. They're capable With it, smiles. I look down at myself. I realize I'm holding nothing, carrying nothing. I always carry something in my hands, she says. A red folder with all the grad school readings I'm trying to finish. A notebook in case I get some poignant quote for a sermon. A Bible, my phone, my laptop. I couldn't remember the last time I walked without carrying anything. I couldn't remember the last time my hands were so empty. When I get my discharge papers, I walk out into the North Carolina spring and I'm like an infant again, so soft 
hopeful, frail. I have one task, to learn how to live in this world. Spunky social worker in her 20s tells me in the hospital, I like to call mental illness a brain disease. We understand liver or kidney disease, but mental illness is just a disease of your brain. There are things we can do to treat it, not cure it, but to treat it. We go down the list, different ways of self-care, sleep, food, exercise, sunlight, relaxation, relationships, healthy thoughts. Now, I'm a person obsessed with percentages. Praise, plus signs. I want to tell her the right thing. I want to be good. How much sleep do you get, she asks. I want to be good, I think. Tell her the right answer to get the perfect score on the quiz. No, I want to be perfect. And as I think it, I shiver like someone who's just avoided a car wreck, hit the ground to avoid a bullet. I want to be perfect, she says. And perfect will kill me. I tell her the truth about five hours or four or six. It depends on school. The week after I'm discharged from the hospital, fragile as a newborn, I drop one class, pass, fail another. I email professors and TAs and ask for extensions. The blue pills make me throw up and I call in sick from preaching class. That's where she was that day. When I was set to preach and I run the rally and the relay between bed and the trash can, I repeat mantras to myself. And she says this, no paper is worth a breakdown. Permission to fail. I will not sacrifice myself to the idol of the perfect sermon. I feel wobbly and tentative as a child taking first steps, learning first words. I don't go back into my mother's womb to be reborn, but I'm born again all the same. I wake in the morning, open my eyes to God. Yesterday was a bad day or a good day, and I'm ashamed or proud of what I've done. I'm terrified, anxious, or hopeful, excited about the day. I make myself get out of bed. The old day dies. The new one begins. I start again. This is someone who from the outside looked like she had it all figured out. And she, she said all the right stuff. She was my hero in preaching class and still is because of this sermon. But it, it, it took a literal letting go for her to survive what perfectionism was pushing her toward. This is how we move toward perfection. It is the bringing back of other people into our lives. It is healing severed relationships. And it is letting go of what we have accumulated to prove that we are good enough. The first thing Jesus says in this sermon is who we are. Blessed are you. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are the poor or the persecuted. Are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be whole. Be complete. As your father is whole. The central confession in Judaism that any good Jew would know. uh, Ted, you and I have said it together in sermons. It's the Shema. At least the first part of it is pretty easy to say. Shema Yisrael, hear O Israel. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is Echad. Echad is the language of unity. It's really hard to translate. You might have heard it said, hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
But the language of Ahad is the Lord is whole. Jesus says that the dream of God is that we would be made whole. That we would be one. Took me a little bit of time in listening to Christina to understand this is what saved her. What killed her was this, this lie that she had to figure it all out and do it all perfectly every single time. What saved her was Bonnie, who's on her right, and the other two friends on her left, who carried her through when she had nothing to hold on to but God. You do not have to be perfect on your own. But together, linked up, we might be whole. Now, what we're doing here, and this is the last thing I'll say before prayer, what we're doing here Sunday after Sunday is trying to make that true. We're trying to find God in one another. To see that as the most important thing when we look eye to eye. Remind each other over and over again that God has called us home, that God has called us good. If we can make that real here, then we have a chance of making that real there. It's so hard. It's such hard work. But you are not alone. As we move to a prayer, songs and communion, I want you to just like shake loose. Wherever you are, just take a minute. Close your eyes if you need to close your eyes. Kind of be present in your seat with who you're with. And as you breathe, this breath that is a gift from God, the breath that is the spirit of God, the wind of creation rushing in to fill you. And as you breathe out, release, let your hands go, open your palms, face them down, You know what you're carrying. You know what you have collected on the way here this morning and the last decades of your life to prove that you are worthy of love and belonging. God loves you because God loves. That's just what God does. So unburden yourself. And then begin to turn your hands up as your heart opens, as we sing together. Because in a moment, you're going to come forward to the table and and grace is going to be on offer again. If your hands are so full, you won't have any room. Would you pray with me? God, make us whole. Put us back together. We are really tired of trying to be perfect, to keep bringing you check marks and report cards. Just we're tired, God. We're exhausted. And we know that we're not measuring up to whatever we have in our heads. So enough. Make us good. Make us holy. Make us whole. Give us friends that pick us up. And set us back on the path. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus.
Amen. Amen.